Hello and welcome to the Guys Like Us podcast. This is your host, Tyler Brondike. And today I'm joined with Ben Pierce, who's an author, artist, podcaster, apologist, and disciple of Christ. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome back to the Guys Like Us podcast. This is your host, Tyler Brondike. First of all, thanks so much for tuning in today. If this is your first time, thanks for checking us out. I hope that you enjoy this conversation today with Ben Pierce. If you're a longtime listener, thanks for your continued support. It means the world to me and to this podcast. If you have not done so already, if you could leave a review and a rating Give us five stars. It would be greatly appreciated as it helps with the continued development and growth of this show. Today's conversation is with Ben Pierce, who's an author, artist, podcaster, apologist, and we discuss Ben's backstory going back to when he was a missionary kid uh, growing up um, in the Netherlands. And he, he shares a bit more about his parents' story um, and then this organization called Steiger, which he's a part of, the, the missions organization is to reach people outside of the church. And that is really the motto for today's conversation with a question, how can we reach a culture in crisis? We look back at some of the, the more recent, recent, but also some of the early, early church crisis um, relating to culture and how the church goes about doing so. Steiger aims to be a new school mission in tools and old school in their values. We discuss his latest book, Jesus in the Secular World, um, and he opens up some simple basics that are needed for God to move in power. Um, through this model of Nehemiah, he explains and shares the way to go out and love the world. It comes down to being more like Christ, something that our culture and our communities are not doing a great job of right now. We need him, we seek him, and we take a step of faith. Ben shares a bit more into apologetics, something that he discusses in the book, um, but the importance of listening. I think we're quick to to speak first, say what we believe, which yes is important, but understanding the other person, seeing where they're coming from and meeting the need should be our first priority. Finally, um, he discusses the life of Christ uh, in contextualizing it and how we are doing right now and what the, what the motto is um, to, in order so that we're not skewing the gospel uh, and keeping things really um, in an easy, understandable way. Ben's latest book uh, comes out toward the end of November, um, and he again shares a lot more into this book and all the work that he's been doing over the past few years. I'm excited for this conversation with Ben Pierce and hope that you enjoy it as well. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it on over to my conversation with Ben. It's a, it's a privilege to be here. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Um, so to, to get things started, I uh, want to hop into some of your, into some of, uh, your newer work and really where, you're, where you've been led right now. But I think before, mm-hmm. we, before we get there, I think it'll help set the stage and um, uh, to, to first uh, learn a bit more about uh, your uh, faith and childhood background. And, and really what, what times were like for you? Yeah. Um, so I have a bit of a, there's no real short answer to, to okay. my, my life. My parents, uh, they 
were missionaries um, back in the 80s with something called YWAM, Youth with a Mission, which I think a lot of at least Christians are familiar with. And uh, they were both from the Minneapolis area and didn't meet there. Um, both felt an independent call to go to Amsterdam uh, and had to fly all the way across the world to meet and ultimately get married. So that mm. in and of itself is pretty, pretty, pretty mm. crazy coincidence. Um, but they went there uh, with this real burden to reach the, the dominant social movement of the time. And in Amsterdam, that were the punks and the anarchists. So these young, uh, rebellious people who had a negative idea about who God is, um, they were... Uh, you know, one thing for sure that tied them together is they saw the church as this irrelevant tradition of the past. You know, especially in Europe, you'll see these big, yeah. beautiful cathedrals and they'll be completely empty on yeah. Sundays. And so for them, this really uh, kind of typified what religion was, this this thing that had no relevance in their life. Uh, and so my parents from the onset thought, you know, how can we reach people that have such a negative view of who God is? Hmm. Uh, and, and to cut a very, very long story short, after many years of prayer and 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 uh, asking God for His plan, they they started a Bible study on a boat uh, in the heart of Amsterdam. And if you've been there, um, there's uh, right by the central train station. Um, there's all of these uh, piers that jut out into the into the sea there, and and they had a Bible study right on a boat on Pier 14. That was the address, and and the word for pier in Dutch is Steiger, Steiger 14, and and the name of the missions organization that I'm now a part of comes from that. It's it's called Steiger International. Um, but anyway, so they, they started this Bible study. Uh, around the same time, they started this band called No Longer Music. Uh, and as the name would suggest, it was not about just music. It was a tool, it was a way of going to secular places, festivals, clubs, uh, and to proclaim Jesus in a relevant way to these people. Uh, and, and so God used this. I mean, there are incredible stories from back in those days. They they played in Soviet um, Soviet Union. They played uh, all over Europe. God just opened up doors um, and, and did incredible things. And, and everywhere they went, um, people would be saved, and they'd begin to identify them as, themselves as Steiger, this missions organization. And we had this movement that happened all over the world. Uh, and then in, a, in around maybe the last 10 or so years, um, this movement has really consolidated and become a mission, a real focused mission under the name of Steiger, uh, and, and what we do is we reach and disciple the global youth culture. Uh, and this is kind of a fancy way of saying we reach people outside of the church, mm. which, in case you haven't been paying attention, is a lot of people. Uh, it's people yeah. that, that, like kind of those beginning days, people that see the church as an irrelevant tradition of the past. And so God has put it on our hearts. I mean, of course, I grew up in this, and eventually we, met, we moved from Holland to New Zealand uh, for my high school years. Uh, and then I went to Minneapolis um, for college and met my wife. Um, and now I'm part of this missions organization that establishes teams in, in urban centers all over the world uh, and does creative evangelism and discipleship and, and basically uh, tries to, to, in a relevant way, share Jesus with a culture that is simply not being reached uh, in traditional ways. And so my role in that is very um very varied, as your introduction suggests. I, I'm still part of this band, No Longer Music, that exists. I sort of creatively directed and write the music, and um, and part of it myself, I sing and play guitar. I just came off a five-month tour uh, three weeks ago where we were all over Europe. Um, saw God do incredible things. I, I We have a podcast um, called Provoke and Inspire, uh, and this is part of something called Come and Live. Sorry, there's a lot, there's a lot yeah, to explain. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, we, we do this podcast, like I said, called Provoke and Inspire, and, and the whole heart of that is how, 
how are followers of Jesus supposed to wrestle with a culture uh, that is increasingly secular and hostile to things of God? How are we supposed to respond uh, in an authentic, loving, and yet bold way in the midst of this culture? Uh, so that's what we do with Provoke and Inspire. And then uh, we speak in churches. Um, there's, a, there's a lot that's going on, including this book that I'm sure we'll talk about at mm-hmm. some point that is coming out, um, the first my first book, which is called Jesus in the Secular World, Reaching a Culture in Crisis. Uh, and it, it basically is the heart of our mission. How how can you reach a culture in crisis? You know, how can we bridge this growing divide between uh, an irrelevant church culture, quite frankly, uh, and a secular world that has no interest or seems to have no interest in traditional Christianity? Uh, how can we bridge that gap and share Jesus in the midst of that? So that was a very... Uh, quick and, and widespread <laughs> description of my crazy life yeah well no, thank you i appreciate it um yeah well yeah i, I think it's it also, i think it also speaks to the to the the definitely desperate need uh because there are a lot of people that are outside the church and you have to go in many different ways uh in roles and functions to reach these people uh because it's it's not something that is I think being as well attended to, or maybe the approach and the the how to get to uh, to reach these people is not uh, as maybe well thought out or well uh, well in- implemented as it should be. Um, and I want to, and it was it was interesting to hear that your that your parents uh, entered in, uh, entered into this space, you know, mm-hmm. some years ago, and it was that was still very pertinent then that this you know this idea of this Western secular yeah. secular culture. It's not something that is just new today, right? Maybe it's no. maybe it's heightened, um, no. but it's not something that's new. And uh, and I think in the age of really you know moral moral uh, relativism and just you know I don't need God to be part of my life, or and then some people with you know absolute disdain or hatred uh, as well. But I, I want to I guess first talk about kind of the organization and. Um, maybe what has been, you, you mentioned that your parents and uh, you've been involved in through urban centers or, you know, going into in, in the Netherlands and uh, having these, you know, discipleship and evangelism uh, meetups or just, uh, can you explain a bit more about kind of what the, at the organization level, what has been really, uh, I guess, effective and, and really useful mm-hmm. in, in, in projecting yeah. this message? Yeah, I, I think what, it's funny you mentioned the the history of it all because I think I think the mistake that we make is to assume that we need to become um, more cool or or it's about finding that that perfect methodology that applies to culture today that it's it's more about form and function and and, and really what we the way we often describe the mission that I'm a part of is we say that we're a new school mission and, and the tools that we use but we're really old school in our values. Um, and, and I think that's maybe the balance that that is rare um, is that I think what you tend to have is you have a lot of um, people who are maybe uh, serious and devoted to sort of the fundamentals of what it means to follow Jesus. You know, the, the sort of um, increasingly net of negative connotation of evangelical Christians, if you will. Mm-hmm. They're very committed to that. And it's um it's all about sort of what makes you in, what makes you out. And, and it's, it's a, it, a lot of times it's cultural. A lot of times things get added to it that complicate it, like partisan politics um, and, and quite frankly, peripheral theology that, that I don't think is as relevant as we make it. And so you have you have that end of the extreme um, who are, of course, not reaching a secular world that, that sees a lot of the barriers that they're putting up, I think, unnecessary barriers. 
on the other end of the spectrum, you have people who are abandoning what it means, I think, to be a true follower of Jesus. They're, they're, they're in the name of relevance, they're compromising. And so it's, they're watering down the message mm-hmm. or they're, they're altering the message or they're making a more palatable, seeker-sensitive version of it because they see that, wow, this, is in, this isn't congruent anymore. Mm-hmm. We're not having a voice. So in order to have a voice, they adapt the message to, be, to fit within the spirit of our age, which, like you said, is relativism and secularism. We, we kind of create Christian versions of, you know, that, that faith is, is maybe not absolute. It's kind of privatized and individual. And what really matters is sort of unity and tolerance and open-mindedness which of course are filled with, with a lot of uh, logical fallacies and, and contradictions. And so you find these opposite extremes. And I think what we're trying to be, with many mistakes along the way and desperately aware of our need for God, is simply to be like Jesus. I, I don't know how we get so far away from that basic idea. Like, what? how did Jesus live? How was he in culture? Because Jesus was completely immersed in culture. In fact, he... The only people that, you know, the people that hated him most were the religious establishment. And, and so he was totally in culture. He loved people. He spoke relevantly using a language that his people understood. But he was absolutely bold and uncompromising. Mm-hmm. He, he held up both of those. He held that in perfect balance, of course, not just because he was the son of God, but I think as a model for us. Mm-hmm. And so I think we're simply just trying to be like Jesus. How, how can we be relevant? How can we speak the right language? while at the same time not compromising what it means to really follow him, ultimately because to follow him is, is the best. You know, these things that he put up, these, these, the design for life is for our flourishing, not for our subjugation. And so we believe that to compromise that is, is to sell people short and honestly to sell them into destruction. And so I think what we try to do within our organization is how can we be like Jesus? And that's really the simple answer to that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so, so then moving forward, I, I think it, it all makes sense of why, you know, you this, uh, I think a lot of Christians understand, or maybe a beginning to now, correct me if this is, uh, if this is, uh, you know, a bit too, a, a bit too, uh, you know, too far stretched, but the, the need for, in, for being in, being involved in culture, um, and, and that the, and the fact that we have to share the gospel or, and work to engage with people outside of the church. But I think the, or what I'm seeing is maybe a, a misunderstanding, or really just a not not quite sure, as you mentioned, how to go about doing it, being on one extreme or the other, um, and really kind of wanting to to, to push the dial uh, in in doing so. Um, so I think I wanted to kind of get into into your latest book or in your first book, which will be coming out this fall, Jesus in the Secular World. Um, and wanted to hear a bit more about the the foundations mm-hmm. of you writing this book, but I think really, you know, what what separates or what what needed to be further explained uh, through sure. this through this book that you weren't already doing. Yeah, um, well, the the history of it is so I was on tour, and um, the book explains this explains this, but I, I was on tour, and we um, uh, there's a church in our in our area that had wanted us to come in and teach a Sunday school, an adult Sunday school class, and my my brother Aaron, who I work with very closely, he basically committed to it without really telling me. And so I, I come back from tour and he's like, oh, we're teaching this four-week class starting next week, so we probably should figure out what we're going to talk about. 
Um, so we panicked a little bit and we, we were like, all right, what, what is it that, that God has done in us? What have we seen in the life he's given us that, that would benefit the church? And so out of that came Jesus in the secular world. And it, it's gone through a lot of, um, there's been a lot of evolution involved in, in the content. But ultimately, I think, again, it's that balance that, that I talked about, which is that, you know, one, one thing I, I had someone say uh, who I sent the book out to, one comment they made is that, it was refreshingly simple. And I, and that to me really was encouraging. It might not be encouraging to somebody mm-hmm. else, but it was for me because I think we've, we've really make, made it so complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what you'll find in the book, and I say this from the very beginning, is that to, to make a difference for Jesus in the secular world is not about the perfect strategy. It's not about the perfect method. Uh, it's about the basics, the same basics of Christianity that have existed from the beginning, which is we need God to move in power. Well, how does God move in power? Well, he moves through power in power when we seek him with an earnest heart. It says that in Hebrews eleven six that God will reward those who seek him with an earnest heart. Because Paul said that men are not convinced by human wisdom, but by God's power. So what the secular world needs to see is, is not more cultural Christianity. It needs to see the power of God. And I believe that's unleashed in people when they pray. Um, what else does the secular world need to see? A, a true broken heart. I think that the church looks at secular problems like an academic thing. And so it says, okay, we need to meet the needs. Yeah, we, we probably should do some things. And again, I, I, I'm making a lot of generalizations about the church. We are, I'm not a critical person of the church by any means. I, we are supported by churches. I love the church. I'm part of the church. So I'm just saying one of the challenges I see in my own life, as well as the church, is that we need to really love people. You know, we, we follow this Nehemiah model that we talk about in his life, where he's confronted by a need. So the first step is get to know the need. Don't don't answer questions people aren't asking. Really get to know the need. Then it said he sat down and wept, right? So he allowed his heart to be broken, not in a trivial way, but in a true way, deep anguish. Right? He really allowed the needs of the world to affect him in a serious way that would be beyond some sort of superficial response, but a deep, deep anguish. And then it said that he fasted and prayed, for, and they estimate it was for months. So he didn't just jump out in response. He recognized that if God didn't go with him, if it wasn't God's plan, if he didn't move in power through what he was doing, it would accomplish absolutely nothing. And then he, had, he took a step of faith. He had courage to go before the king and really risk his life to then go and make a difference. And so that's kind of the pattern that the book lays out. It's, it, we, you know, I get in some areas of how to speak in a relevant way and some presuppositional apologetics and, and, and some various things. But for the most part, it follows that very basic pattern of know the need, allow God to break your heart, seek him with a desperate heart, and then take a step of courage to make a difference. Because I think really the formula, if you want to call it that, as crass as that is, has not changed. That is still how God uses normal, ordinary people like me to make a difference. Yeah. Can you say that one more time? The, you know, quote unquote formula. Uh, the, the part about, Oh, I, it, that, what I said there at the end is not really a, a formula yeah. per se, you know, and that can be a crass mm-hmm. way to describe it. Mm-hmm. But I, I think truly that is still how God uses people today is that mm-hmm. through those basic ideas that we we need him, we seek him, he breaks our heart, and we take a step of faith. Hmm. Okay, so we need him, we seek him, and um, we take a step of faith. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 Um, No, yeah. And so I think kind of as we, maybe as you start to understand or 
or, or, or rather, you know, as, as you mentioned, there's, you know, some things in apologetics that um, are defending the faith and, you know, think, things that are important for going going out and, and, and being strong and understanding kind of what you believe and, and what the faith is. Um, but I don't think, you know, I don't think we have to have a PhD in apologetics to do a good job. Um, I want to know, maybe is there a few, a few, you, you spoke on these presuppositions. Is there a few things that we need to understand that can allow us to, to go out and, and navigate and be confident as well? Sure. Yeah. I, I think the biggest, the biggest, thing I see, um, I think there's a lot of people within the church that they, they really believe that their faith is on weak, shaky academic grounds. They, they don't understand that, that our mm. faith is actually incredibly well supported and, and rationally sound and, and holds up incredibly well to scrutiny and has for, for many, yeah. many, many yeah. years. Yeah. And, and so I think even from in a sense of strengthening our own faith, um, but I think also isolation and when it comes to relevance isolation is our enemy and i think the problem is we have isolated ourselves from people and so we don't even know the questions they're asking anymore and and so naturally we're not going to know and lovingly we're not going to know how to answer those questions because we simply don't know what they are and, and so i would say that the the first problem is we need to be in the real world i'll tell you the greatest impetus for apologetics is Start getting some question asked, questions asked of you that you don't know the answers to. That's going to be the most biggest motivator for wanting to get out there and learn some things about your faith. When someone challenges you and you go, I don't know how to answer that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think apologetics in a vacuum is not that motivating. It's it's kind of like trying to learn a language but never being in contact with anyone that ever speaks it. Yeah. You know, It's just kind of academic and it's it doesn't become useful. So I think the first thing is we need to – really be in the real world, really talking to people, asking them, not being afraid to ask them some of the tough metaphysical questions about you know, the origins of the universe and the meaning of their lives and the, the ontology of, of morality and the, the ultimate sense of what is the destiny, where am I going? You'd be amazed that people want to talk about these things. And despite the cliche taboo, I think they want to talk about things that they're really wrestling with. And in, in asking these questions, I think you'll discover what answers you need. And also I think the problem is too, too much of apologetics is, is speaking and not enough listening. I think good apologetics is, is almost primarily listening with a little bit of talking. Um, and I think that's kind of gotten mm. in reverse. Um, and then, and then you'll start to discover the things that, that people wrestle with and you'll fail and you'll feel dumb. I mean, I, I've had a, a thousand apologetic conversations and, and often you'd, you stumble and you don't feel like you you get the answers right. But I also think God leads you. I mean, I was just in Ukraine and uh, we we played a show um, with Van Nolager Music for a huge crowd, like 2,000 people. And it was amazing. And we preached the gospel and there was great response and all that. And I jump off the stage and these two guys come up to me, both named Andre, which is weird, but whatever. <laughs> they both come up to me and they're... Um, they want to talk, and and so we're talking. And I can tell right away these are you know very intellectual guys. I mean, they're speaking perfect English as Ukrainians, mm. and one of them is like a physicist, the other guy's a musician, and you know I'm so I'm like okay, this might be you know they're both clearly not into the didn't really get the message. They they're like yeah I appreciate it, but I'm not sure. And so we started talking, and I was mostly talking to the physicist guy, and you know we were trying to get into some origins you know how does the world get here and infinite regress and big bang and it wasn't really going anywhere and 
the guy was a physicist and I was like finding myself a little overmatched in that way. <laughs> so it wasn't, it wasn't going super well. Um, but then, you know, then, then he said, you know, my, my problem, my, my biggest problem is, is that I, I, there's just so many questions I have of God, so many things I don't understand, you know? And I said, well, you know, I have a two year old son and there are a lot of things he doesn't understand. You know, there's a lot of things, the decisions I make that he doesn't get, you know, but as a good dad, I make decisions on his behalf and, and he has to trust me. And I don't always, I'm not always, he's not always going to understand what I'm doing. And that's just the gap between a two-year-old and, and an adult man. Like that, that is not even that big of a gap. You imagine the gap between us and this infinitely powerful God. We're not always going to understand mm-hmm. everything about him. And he, mm-hmm. he paused and went, that, that's a very good point. Mm-hmm. That and it was this weird and what I in apologetics I kind of like what I I'm after what I call huh moments mm-hmm. which is that they just kind of pause and go oh I didn't really think of it that way and then I was able to talk about you know he was really upset about the injustice in Ukraine why is America so rich and why is Ukraine so poor and I said you know what and I looked at him and I really felt God's heart for him and I said you know what if Jesus was here he would be in Ukraine. He would be he would be upset about the injustice. You know, so many people think that if God does exist, he doesn't care. But what we showed on the stage tonight proves that that's not true, because Jesus sent himself in the middle of the suffering. Mm-hmm. And it was incredible that you could just again, these aren't like your classic apologetic arguments, but essentially they're using some reason and an understanding of language to explain things in their context. And the attitude, their attitudes completely changed. I could tell that it was. They were totally open. I was able to pray with them. You know, Ravi Zacharias, I heard him once say that apologetics are not the cross, but they're the shears that remove the bushes that obscure the cross. Mm. And I think that's kind of what I'm after in apologetics is do we love people enough to to understand their mindset, to understand what they wrestle with and to learn how to lovingly navigate through some of those challenges that we may just just you know, get remove some of the obscurities that block them from seeing who Jesus is. Because if we do that, you have those huh moments. And that's when I think God can really work. Mm. Wonderful. Yeah, no, I, I, um, I, I do resonate with that. And I think also, I mean, I, I completely agree. I think there's, um, there's room that we should, we should, and we have to have this room for curiosity and wonder and uh, for the kind of that, you know, that the, the gap in between that we might under, understand. And I think that's completely okay. And I, and it's, I think as yeah. we continue to grow and learn, we, I don't know, it's this weird, we understand more, but we also are aware of the amount that we don't understand as well. For um, sure, yeah. But I think at the same time, what I think we're able to, and I think this might be hard for some people, but I think I really encourage it is just to ask God directly. I think sometimes we like to talk to people and again, really try and, answer this from a purely academic or intellectual perspective when we can just, we don't understand, we might not understand why this is so, let's just, you know, like God or even like whoever is up there right now, like, can you show the answers for me and show me what's going on? And I think, I I really do believe that he'll, he'll speak in those moments. Yeah, no, absolutely. I've I've seen that as well. And again, like Paul said, Paul was was a brilliant apologist and, and yet, he said, you know, he's the one who said men are not convinced by human wisdom, but by God's power. And so we have to live within this paradox that I think it's it's uh, irrefutable that we we need to be able to reason with people. Yeah. 
all the while knowing that that it is not our reasoning that will ultimately change them. And so that seems frustrating, but I think it's just part of sort of the paradox and the the tensions of our faith. Mm -hmm. Um, No, I completely agree. Um, Is there, uh, so kind of, so based on this, you you mentioned the story of Nehemiah. Is there any other really? Is there any other biblical examples uh, or two that act, that that ex- describe Jesus engaging in the secular world? Well, yeah. I mean, I think obviously, obviously <laughs> I mean, there's plenty. Jesus, yeah, yeah. Jesus is used quite a bit in, as an example in my book. Again, yeah. I I, th- I think primarily, it's funny how, and I said this before. I think one of my main frustrations is how we depart so vastly from from jesus's his example and and Mm. and not to say that it's easy it's not it's it's you know we wrestle with sin and selfishness and selfish ambition and and we're never going to have it nailed but but i think if we would just honestly look at how jesus lived i think it would eliminate a lot of the struggle that we have in being relevant and reaching people so so as i already mentioned jesus you know Jesus, when he was with people, he spoke of fishing and sowing and seeds and sheep. And we list, we, we, we read that and we're, oh, that's cool, you know, and we kind of don't attach that to its practical reality in that culture. He didn't speak that way because it was just cute, you know, agrarian terminology. He spoke mm-hmm. that way because that was, that was everyday life for people. Those were extremely relevant symbols of his day. And yet so often in the church, and this is exasperating to me, we will still use those symbols. We'll still speak in that way. You know, we don't we don't attempt to contextualize that to our culture. We simply create our own sort of pseudo Christian culture and try to export that to the world. And we wonder why they look at us like, "What are you talking about? What is that?" You know, I I, I don't want to get off on a tangent, but it's like, okay, we're going to have an outreach event. So what should we do? Um, let's invite the coolest worship band we can think of. Uh, and, and then invite everyone to come and listen to that worship band and then have a have a 40 minute sermon like to me that's just not even getting it it's not even looking at Jesus and going he that's not how he was he was integrated into culture he spoke their language he but, but he didn't try to export this sort of culture to the world in that sense he he subverted culture and and revolutionized it but he didn't create his own subculture and then try to export it in that way mm-hmm yeah, no, I and um, uh, somebody was, and just I think as of recent, I've been thinking. I think we have to get back to the, the how the early church was responding uh, to Jesus, and and, and I think really the seriousness um, and, and how they were engaging with others um, at that time. You know, it, it was no, and I think this speaks to you know they were as you mentioned right in the midst of culture. Um, and because you know it was it was it was quite centralized. Or there you know there was I think that there was a lot of moving pieces, and there was uh, it was really you know things were starting to flourish and globalize at that time too, right? With the emergence uh, mm-hmm. and, and the spread of, of of religion, spread of language, and uh, this time we're just there's a lot of flourishing in different directions, um, which I think is is quite relevant with the age of technology as well and information we have here. Um, so culture was culture was really th- uh, starting to, to 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 span, but then also at the same time um, there was uh, this this uh, I guess theological grounding or this this seriousness that people had with the faith, and it was it was and I don't want to you know I don't advocate for life or death, but it was almost at that 
back then it was almost at that level that persecution was so high. And I don't advocate for us, you know, intentionally persecuting ourselves, but I think we, we should put ourselves out there and, and be and be able to be comfortable being in these uncomfortable, being in the uncertain and putting ourselves in spaces where like we might, it might not feel right, but we know that we have to. And I think we're, mm-hmm. we're getting a little too comfortable in, in, in what, what we're doing and how we're doing it. And as you mentioned, I think, I think now is a time where we have to, you know, increase the friction a little bit or really kind of go back to the early church and think about how they were doing things at a time when, the, when you know, this, it started to really flourish. But then at the same time, I think uh, if we look at the globe right now, global uh, Christianity across the globe is, especially Africa, is booming right now, actually. Um, but Christianity in the United States is not, not doing so well. So looking at the yeah. example of how, why is Christianity booming so much in Africa right now? How is it doing it? Well, I, I think because um, we, you know, they, there's a lot of statistics, of course, on on the decline of Christianity yeah. in the West and, and maybe yeah. especially here in the U.S., although mm-hmm. Europe is ahead of us. Um, I think what it is, is is that for a long time, there was a social benefit to being a Christian in the U.S., so for many many years to be a Christian was a was a noble thing. It was an honorable thing. You were seen as a mm. you know it was sort of the prevailing mindset, and you went to church. That's what everybody did, and it's how you it was the fabric of society. It's where you often met your spouse. It's where you did business. It was there was a social benefit. You were in the stream of culture. Now there is a social cost to being a Christian. Mm. Now to being a true Christian means you're homophobic, you're a bigot, you're closed-minded, you're anti-scientific, you're now mm-hmm. against the stream of culture. And you mentioned friction. I don't think we need to try friction, try to be fr- uh, create friction. I know, I know you weren't saying that per se, mm-hmm. but yeah. I think just, just to be, try to be like Jesus in culture today, that's going to produce plenty of friction yeah. Yeah. just as a, as a byproduct, I think. Mm. So, so what you have, okay, so now you have a social cost. So what does that mean? All those people that were loosely culturally Christian when it, when it was beneficial are now jumping ship now that it costs something. Because why on earth would you be all those things I mentioned when it's just a cultural thing in the first place? Yeah. And so I think what you're seeing is you're, you're seeing that mass of lukewarmness mm, yeah. jumping ship. I think you're seeing some people d- count the cost and choose to follow Jesus. I think you're seeing many more people count the cost and say, the heck with this. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and they, many people, they may not be abandoning their faith altogether, but what you're really seeing, uh, and D.A. Carson talks about this, is you're seeing an, a privatization of people's faith. It's becoming something that, you know, it's almost like uh, the, the product of relativism. It's like, mm-hmm. I have a faith, but it's my faith. And it's a faith that doesn't come out in the public sphere. It's a faith that won't challenge your faith. Uh, so just kind of let me have my faith and you can have yours and let us just coexist, you know, like those ludicrous stickers that you see. Mm-hmm on people's uh, cars that's the kind of that's what's happening and so i think i think that's what you're seeing because ultimately why why follow a god this just sort of a you know i wouldn't follow a god either that cost me that much if it was just a cultural thing mm-hmm. like if, if it was just a cultural thing in 2018 i'd have bailed too yeah. um because it's not real and so i think there needs to be a revival of true what it means to truly follow Jesus. And like you said, I, I think inherently in that is a cost. Yes. There's no such thing as following Jesus without a cost. Yep. So it's not that we need to return to a more costly form of Jesus. We just need to form, come back to Jesus, and that in itself will come with a cost. And I think most people just aren't, aren't willing to pay that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, there, there's a great book that I love, uh, and I've read it several times, and I probably will read it more times. It's by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, The Cost of Discipleship, mm-hmm. and yeah, yeah. was in a, a Christian martyr in Germany. Um, and yeah, I mean, really saw, saw this as a, a very, very serious matter in a, in a, in a time that was in, that was really in crisis, obviously during world war two and Nazi Germany, um, but was willing to put his, his faith on the line for it. So, um, I think there, there definitely is a, there's an incredible need. Um, and I think again, as you've, as you've been speaking on, uh, how we do it, uh, and just aiming to be more like Jesus, I think has to be. It has to be our has to be our approach. Yeah, yeah, and and with that, I think there. Be, you know, I'm reading through the book of Acts, and I I, I see in Paul such a, dev, a singular devotion. I, I see him. You know, he said, "I'll do. I'll become all things to all men that I might win some. I'll do. You know, you see in him this true heart of I will do anything hmm. to to share who Jesus is. And there's almost a ruthless singularity to his focus and. I think the problem is we, you do see a lot of baggage being added on both ends of the extreme by Christians. And so on one end of the extreme, you have all, it's very in vogue now to be, you know, irreverent and unholy and, and just, oh, to be Christian, is just who cares? And I can do and say whatever I want. God doesn't care as long as I, you know, it's, it's this sort of like weak, watered down Christianity Mm -hmm. that to be honest, how is that inspiring? Hey, come to come follow God. He doesn't change anything or make or change me or the world, but come follow him anyway. Like, what is that? Then on the other end of the spectrum, you have people who are adding all of this stuff. You know, to be a Christian, you got to vote for this party and you got to believe in these things and mm-hmm. and you got to look a certain way and talk a certain way and 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 that that stuff is all garbage too. It's like we need to to I think we need to do some serious soul searching about what is it? What is the essence of what it means to follow Jesus? And in doing so, discover what that cost is and be willing to pay it. Um, and then if we do that, then the amazing things will actually experience the God of power, the God of the universe, the God that actually changes things. And we'll discover that the cost is really no cost at all. Um, well, great. Uh, I, I, that's uh, all I have for today as we're closing in on time. And um, just wanted to to know, uh, I guess, to the last, last, few, last two questions. Um, anything else or a piece of encouragement, word of advice for listeners or in, in, in anything on your heart that you'd like to share? I, I mean, I think yeah. I probably <laughs> said it somewhere in all of that. But I, I, again, I, I just think that it's like I continue to say, I, I think we need to we need to stop we overcomplicating it. And that's not to say it's simple, but it is simple, even though it's incredibly difficult. And, and ask ourselves, look honestly at the scripture and, and ask ourselves what how did Jesus live and how should we respond and I think if we would do that sincerely and authentically I think we would probably find a lot of things needing to go um, and we'd find things maybe getting a, difficult but also that's when we'd be made really alive and when our Christianity would no longer be this useless cultural attachment that quite frankly I would reject mm-hmm. just like the world's rejecting because it's powerless and and it's not attractive on any level. Wonderful. Um, and then finally, just where people can find uh, this book, um, Jesus in the Secular World, and and also yep. anything else that you're that you're doing. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't, uh, you know, for anyone that's tried to write a book, it's it's been pushed back a little bit. November twenty third is unfortunately it's quite a bit later than it was supposed to come out. But 
Uh, our missions organization is Steiger. That's S-T-E-I-G-E-R dot org slash J-S-W, Jesus Secular World. That's kind of where we're going to be updating the information about when it's coming out and all that and how you can get it. Otherwise, uh, I'd really uh, recommend that you listen to our podcast, Provoke and Inspire. That's kind of where this we have this ongoing discussion about how can we be relevant for Jesus in the secular world. And it happens every week. It features myself and Chad Johnson, who I think you've you maybe have had on. I'm not sure. Um, David Pierce and then Luke Greenwood, who's our international director. And it's uh, yeah, I think that would be the best is provoke and inspire wherever podcasts are available. Awesome. Uh, well, Ben, again, pleasure having you on today, getting into uh, your recent uh, upcoming book, uh, but then also into your backstory and uh, how, how this narrative continues to get played out as well. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me on. Really appreciate it.